This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. I am so pumped for today's guest. This is the first in real life recording from Los Angeles that I have ever done on this pod and it is with the iconic Grant Smiley. So you Aussie listeners will remember him from TV Rock, that incredible song Flaunted, he's won two arias, very prolific DJ, producer, owned his own record label, had his own like... Like, I think it's a PR firm, ID Collective, but it was where he kind of like looked after talent as well. So it was more than a PR firm. Um, Worked Nova, Channel V. Then 2013, moves to LA, sets up Botanical Hospitality Group. Within 18 months, opens the iconic rooftop bar and restaurant, EP and LP. He's got Melrose Theatre, like you can legit... Outdoor theatre, beautiful, stunning, watch Dirty Dancing out, out in, you know, in the starlight and you can see like the Hollywood sign from there. He's also set up Strings of Life. He opened that in the middle of the pandemic. And this summer he's opening Grandmaster Records. He's absolutely unstoppable. You'll hear in this chat uh, how calm, cool and collected Gran is, but he's hungry, like he's a go-getter and he really believes in working hard, rolling up your sleeves and having no regrets. So I really hope you enjoy the wonderful Grant Smiley. Grant Smiley, you have been on my dream podcast guest list for quite some time and now that we're living in the same part of the world, it's finally happening. Welcome, by the way. Oh my goodness, thank you. It's such a culture shock. I know it sounds really weird, but it is. I picked up a rental car yesterday and the back was like a half-eaten packet of chippies, a knife and a sesame bar. Oh, it's just what you want. <laughs> it's a survival kit. They've given you the LA like, survival. Well, I was going to say, welcome to LA. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. But I was thinking about the first time I met you. I would have been 18 years old. I was working in a clothing store in Greville Street called Stevie. I remember. With acid wash yeah, jeans. Yeah, how good. You were the king of <laughs> Prince of Wales. Yeah. Back in that day. Good times. Right? Good times. That was the first time we actually met, I'm pretty sure, through Linden, right? Yeah, exactly. So... Okay, that I kind of want to start there because you're doing all these amazing things here in LA. You've got so many projects on the go. We caught up for a coffee last week and I was like, I can't keep up with what this guy's doing. But when I got to know you, you were kind of like an incredible DJ producer, had your own record company as well or producing company. And then, so there's so much stuff. So, okay. I deep-dived you, my friend. <laughs> you graduated school, like, year 12 at 16, right? hmm Straight into promoting. Yep. Is it true that, so you have to put, like, your name. I used to be a promoter at Prince back in the day, and you have to put your initials on, like, every pass, right? Yeah, annoying. 
And what did you do to kind of like speed that process up? I got a drill bit and drilled through a bunch, so it was real quick. <laughs> and At 16? Yeah, and then I went to... I actually met Peter Raff, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, and we, his old man was a fruiterer at the um, Melbourne University. So I used to go and drop off passes inside the fruit stand with him. So there'd be all, in between all these nectarines and stuff, there'd be my passes and I'd go and hit all through the city, dropping off passes everywhere. It wasn't like pretty quickly I realised that just your friends wasn't enough and maybe if you want to get traction beyond that, try and get this, these real estate bits that were pretty good and fun and not that I was even going to Melbourne Uni, I never went there, but I went there to promote and just sort of see if I can make a few bucks on the side. So, And that was for the iconic Metro, right? That's that where you metro. started. Yeah, but that went for the Metro and then from there I went to Redhead and a few other bits and pieces around the way and had a lot of fun, you know. So good. But then decided that um, promoting school was great, don't be wrong, I think it was really good, you know, networking kind At of 16 thing. 16 as well. Yeah, it was great. Super young. Super young. But I also would look like I was 10, so the only way to get into a nightclub was to actually go to meetings during the day and make it look like I was sort of, you know, part of the, the crew. But then after a while, obviously, if you start performing for the venue, then you start to know the faces at the door and all of a sudden their ID piece just goes away and then, yeah. then you're getting invited by rival clubs to say, oh, this guy's making some moves, so maybe we should get this guy over. So all those bits of, like, the, the doors of access and restrictions and whatever else went away because I was actually kind of, once you got that foot in the door, the, and the hustle continued. Yeah. But sort of, you know, promoting was like a really good, I think, you know, that's the introduction to networking and around your way the world to try and meet people as many as you could. Yeah. Um, but equally figure out how to make a dollar along the way. I mean, I think you see a lot of promoters end up as real estate agents because they just know so many people, you know, right, and they trust and connected, them. yeah. So I think that those kind of things were really good and even they still play me in good stead the amount of volume of people I met over the years and it could have been as a DJ, could have been as promoter, could have been as anything and then hopefully they trusted you or you had a good experience with you along the way and then they continue your evolution in the path. Now, that's not to say that I want to continue to do $1 per person entry yeah. passes <laughs> with a drill bit and I'm age 44, that would be a bit weird. <laughs> But how good, like how, it's so, and is it true that you did a double degree at Monash as well? I did a management marketing double, yeah. So like you're promoting, you're studying full-time, double mm. whammy, by the way. Yep. Was that at Clayton? It was. Oh, that's where I went, Menzies Building. Yeah, and then I moved to uh, Caulfield, to the concrete jungle of Caulfield yep. because it was just a little bit closer to finish it off, so. For all the Melbourneites listening, they'll love this. Yep. So I want to know where – so I heard that you played the sax mm-hmm. for eight years mm-hmm. at school. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep. Okay, so I'm, I'm imagining you're doing all this promoting, you're making a quick bark, you're making all these connections, but you've probably got this, like, burning desire for, hang on, my passion is really music. So when did you kind of switch from, hang on, I want to focus on music? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's only one Kenny G on the planet. So, you know, if you're, the, if you're playing the sax, you probably, I'm that guy already had me covered. <laughs> but equally, it's sort of one of those things. You did it at school because it was um, part of the requisite, you know, kind of you had to do it. You had to pick it up as part yeah. of the curriculum, do, it, do an instrument. Now it just happened to be the instrument. Um, but, yes, music was certainly something that I really enjoyed. Um, but then part of that process along the DJ, how the DJ thing came into music was promoting. I was out around surrounded by clubs. All of a sudden the DJs became my really good buddies mm. and my best mates were DJs. And But one of the most challenging things you have to say to someone is I'm also passionate about music and like two of my best buds actually were in, well, we were doing music together at Xavier and they, you know, you go and see them and say, hey, I also want to play some records and it depends how your friends take things. There's often a good, like a metronome of where they really sit in your yeah. life because I was expecting them to say, oh, definitely don't do it. 
And, you know, one of my mates was a bit, oh, you really think you want to do it? But the other a couple of my other mates were like, oh, this is 100%, you should definitely go for it. And and I'd been practising at home, bought some stuff, and yeah. I just really felt like the ability to pick up the craft was super simple because of the music that I'd already been doing. So, you know, yeah. the ability of sitting there saying this is faster, this is slower, this sounds good with this. Now, the key signatures, some people might get nerdy and say, well, this works with this and G minor works with F sharp or whatever yeah. else. But it's also you. anyone who's played records know that it, why does it sound good together? Generally, they're in key or if it sounds weird, it's kind of they're out of key. Yeah. So at some point anyway, I decided that maybe making re- playing records was the first part of it, not making at that point, but playing records was more fun than just giving out dollar per person passes. Totally. I want to be the guy that's influencing the room. I reckon I can do a better job than that guy, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So um, good. And start, you know, collecting records and it was sort of making sure you go out and buy all this stuff and it was, you know, 22 bucks a yeah. vinyl. They're not, they're not cheap, This you know? isn't coming with a USB, shove it into no. it. You, you know, had to then take out two crates of records to yeah. a first two year gig. And, you know, the f- one of the first gigs, I mean, one of the major first gigs I did was at this place in Melbourne called Saratoga. Oh, and my goodness, that's where I went for my 18th birthday. It's such a good place, right? <laughs> we used to start really late at night and go to the really late in yeah. the morning. But on a Friday night, there was, you know, a bunch of legends playing there that had been playing there for a very long time. And I, I, someone called out sick and all of a sudden I was playing in the main room and I thought I'd done a killer job. Yeah. I thought I crushed it yeah. and the place was really going hard, right? It was really good. But the next week a buddy of mine rings me up. He was also the general manager there and he said, hey, um, hey, champ, wasn't really that good. The boys weren't happy with your performance. Really? Um, I think, you know, young buck and a bunch of like older dudes who were really not that excited about it. And they said, so you're not going to play here on Fridays. We can give you a little side room sh- shitty gig on a Saturday. Excuse my French. Yeah. I was like, oh, you can swear as much as you want, P.S. Oh, sweet. Nice. But anyway, I ended up, you know, devastated saying I thought I'd killed it. I told all my friends come down at fr- that Friday. We're going to make this as part of our new DNA. And as it turns out, you know, the first big gig was also a heartbreak gig. Like it was a no, a hard no, like sort of. Yeah. And then you could take it in two ways. It was either, well, then, okay, that's my, I'm not going to be playing main stages or do that kind of thing again or... Maybe I just got to reevaluate it and figure out a new way to get back to that main room. And so for me, then that also spurned the impetus to say, well, why am I playing other people's records? Maybe yeah. I should be making my own records because I've got the ability to do so. Um, but you also, I wanted to fast forward the opportunity because starting from scratch, sure, it takes a minute and you can do it, but it's just like anything. You've got a repetition time, you know, practice yeah. over, and over and over and over. You're not totally. an overnight success. Um, so I sought out and um, a guy called Ivan Goff, who was yes. a producer partner of mine for TV Rock. But yes. He was the kind of guy, he was, he was coming to One, One Love at the Prince of Wales. Yeah. And he said, you know, um, do you want to make a record? And I was, forget about it. Let's definitely do that. Awesome. And that became, you know, our first few records were exceptionally well received. But I sort of recognised that, you know, he'd had a whole, you know, a generation almost already under his belt of producing records yeah. in an underground capacity but perhaps my um, partnership with him could unlock a whole new potential that we you know both could you know collaborate on yeah and you know I was leveraging the fact that I could probably ex- like particle accelerate my development yeah. by leveraging off someone who's been you know far in advance of me at the time and I think that's also if you said you're in the kitchen and you were with a really great chef yeah that you working with someone and they put the time and energy yeah. into to tell you their, their knowledge of 20 years as opposed to you fumbling around and saying well why do I why have I gone this way forever yeah. and all of a sudden I've oh that's the right way you know it's like so, your training ground as well yes so is this was flaunt like talk me through flaunt it <laughs> do, you know, do you want to know my first memory of flaunt it I was working at that clothing store yeah 
Shawnee B came in and played it on repeat, I shit you not, for like an hour straight and was dancing around the shop and I was like, got it, mate, it's a winner. Like, uh, It wasn't a winner though. It wasn't a winner, Lola. It wasn't. I forced that track down people's throats. I mean, that, that record is funny because Shawnee was with a band called Dirty Laundry mm-hmm. and so he was doing some things with Dean Cherney, another Melbourne DJ, and I heard him and I was sort of talking to him about it and sort of I said, I want to do something with you at some point. We'd done a few other bits and pieces and... Um, I just sort of thought that he had an interesting kind of rap style that hadn't been done on house music, you know, yet. And we had this kind of bed that was sitting around doing not much. And so I got him into the studio and we sort of, we rapped, like riffed on this thing for a while. And the flaunter that you and everyone else knows was certainly not the flaunter where it started. So it was a bit more underground, way more sort of like cool record. And then we sort of left it and Ivan and I were talking about it going, "This, this is in a good place, but I think we need like a main room mix as opposed to one for the underground clubs. And that's what, I guess, the, the and the benefit of being a DJ was I could go and take it out on a Saturday night, play it in a crowd and Test figure it. out which bit's not working, which yeah. bit's a bit flat, let's figure this out and whatever. So we ended up with this main room mix. And I guess to sort of Shawnee's point saying, and I'm sure he was excited, I think when anyone does a first <laughs> yeah. record, you're always very excited about it. And yeah. the testament sometimes was me waking up the next morning going, I'm still enjoying it or a week later, does it really still resonate yeah. with me? But I was playing that record for, you know, four, six weeks at the Prince and wherever else around Australia. Getting okay reactions, but nothing like stupid. But also knowing that I thought it was going to have, it had something about it, um, sent it off to a few record labels and primarily got no's across mm-hmm. the board from all of them. Um, and I know you touched on earlier about perhaps, you know, starting your own record label and all those things. Well, that was the very first start of my record label because I sort of realised that we, I got a bunch of no's again, you know, with the track people were saying it's not, you know, yeah, maybe we can sign it, was put it out. But I'm like, no, I think it needs to be more than that. I need a plan. I need to figure out what it is. Are we doing a clip? We're doing this. We're doing that. Um, so in the end, just said no to everybody and because there was nothing really on offer. Flew to Sydney, got no's. Flew to Brisbane, got no's. I'm like, well, this is, well, we're going to put it out ourselves. We're going to press it ourselves, but then I can create the artwork, I can control the narrative. Yeah. Um, Frank from One Love said, I'll do the video. Yeah. It's terrible if you've ever seen it. I have seen it. I have it's watched a, it. It was a $2,000 film clip and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it in the show notes for anyone that wants to see it. It's so good. It's bad. Um, but, again, we had no money, no budget, no anything. And, and the, thing, the thing that was interesting was you find pretty quickly that there's a reason why you do want to sign with a record label because we ended up doing a distribution deal because there's a thing called an ISRC code, which is an international recording source code. Okay. Now, that's like your barcode, right? So if you go Got and scan it. it and you went to, you know, back in the days you actually sold CDs and vinyls, whatever. Yeah. So you go and scan that at any store in Australia and it would track through and you'd be yes. able to figure it out. And that's globally, by the way, you'd be able to figure it out. So for me then trying to figure out with, at the time, say, a JB Hi-Fi, which is a really big retailer then selling a lot of singles, like, what's your opening order? I'm like, I don't know. You tell me what your opening order is. Yeah. So I'm committing to press, you know, singles and then trying to do this. What's this? I say, how do I get that barcode thing? And then trying to figure out all this, you know, what's my billing cycle? What's this? What's that? I'm like, oh, this is hard. Yeah. I actually just want to make records and I actually want to do other bits. So I went back to Sony and did a deal with Sony and said, you guys handle all that stuff. I don't yeah. want to know about that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a bit similar to book publishing, like my background's book. You can self-publish, but you lose access to exactly the same equivalent of what you've just described. Yeah. But this, you won two Arias from this. And did you sell over like 300,000 copies? Yeah, it was the highest selling record of the year. You can't lose that one. That's the only one that people don't vote on, so that's a good yeah. one. <laughs> um, so Great. that's just the straight-up numbers number. And then the highest, our best dance track of the year. But, I mean, what was the first of the... Um, dance arias to really break through. So there was us as the first dance 
that was the highest selling record. That's the only time I think it's happened. But then from then it was the preset, sneaky, you know, so all those good. kind of cats that rolled after us that were kind of, but it was, the, it was a really strong period of dance music post what we did, sort of really crossed over into the mainstream. Also, you were hosting a show on Nova. I was, yeah. Channel V. I Channel did not v. know about until I deep dove. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was doing that. So it was, I mean, that was sort of at the same time I was trying to figure out how to, I mean, you're often, you know, here I try to control the narrative about what I do, but we, similarly why, how those things happen, it's not like Nova comes and knocks on the door and says, hey man, would you like to do a show? Yeah. You know, yeah. like for anyone out there who's done, who's hustled, like you're doing your own podcast, whatever else, ultimately you're trying, you're creating something and hopefully you're creating your own audience. So yeah. similarly, I went to Nova and said, here's a free show. I'm going to do it. I'm going to produce it. We'll figure it out. I'll get you the guest because I had access to a lot of these internationals. They're friends of mine. I can say, let's do these interviews. Yeah. Um, reached out to John Corse, who was my um, DJ, you know, collaborator at, at The Prince and said, yeah. mate, should we do it together? Because probably two is better than one in this show. Um, we're doing that. But back to the point of what you're controlling. So I figured out pretty quickly that, you know, I, want, I should be having my own DJ booking agency because I was producing this records and I'm sitting there saying, okay, so I'm making this. I've got a record label that's doing this. And then I'm booking all these other – someone else is taking 20% when I should yeah, be taking the 20%. Shit. And then I also know all the other DJs. Maybe I can book them and get a better booker. And so then I was leveraging people like Ruby Rose yeah. and whatever else and saying, why don't you I all come along? I think Fastina worked with you for a little yeah, while Fuzz as well. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah, she's a good mate. Yeah, she's unreal. So we just sort of put together this thing. I was throwing my own events. I'm like, again, cut the promoter out. Let's just make sure we, we'll make a better cuts with the DJs direct. We'll, we'll facilitate parties and we'll produce a show for Channel V. So we had this V Nova events, like booking agency. So good. It was, it was great. It was really, it was an amazing time. It was Is, really was good. Was that ID Collective? Is that right? So that was before that. We had a thing called 360. Yes. So 360 Agency, we this. sold that to Ministry of Sound eventually. <sighs> so those guys Cute. bought it with the Stafford Brothers and we had, you know, everyone from Timmy Trumpet through to Will Sparks, whatever yeah, else, you know, yeah. then they all went off. And it was great to sort of, you know, get to a point though. I started to really spend more time um outside of music and I was sort of doing, like like you said, ID Collective, which was a PR agency that I started. Yeah. Um, I always had a passion for high-level creative outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, it was then trying to figure out where do I best spend my time and what am I most passionate about? Yeah, definitely. And that's what – this is the thing that I um, heard. So when you were, like, DJing, touring, producing, but also touring with, like, pretty mega, mega – Artists, uh, P.S. We're recording this in your wonderful EP and LP. Yeah, if you, don't if you mind hear a, little, a bit of background, bit of action, yeah. <laughs> but you were on three hundred flights a year, right? And so yeah. you were missing weddings, you were missing, you know, family things probably as well. What kind of is that? What kind of like made you go? Hang on, I want to focus on like what was, I want to know the switch from all this to hospo. Yeah, I mean, it's good questions. Yeah, the fatigue on on gigs and stuff. I think it's also. In reality, you knowing what it does to take it the top, top, top of your game. And look, I think in Australia, most people might say that I did a pretty good job as in, in the music field and the Definitely. DJ field. But on the international scene, I think I got onto the cusp of it and I was always DJing with the, the top echelon of fellas because they always knew it was, we were all, you know, it's like anything, it's a little clicky at the top and you're always travelling around together. But in order to maintain the rage and really to continue the growth and do whatever else, 
I just knew that there was an enormous amount to sacrifice for the rest of your life. And I was looking at dudes, and I love guys like Carl Cox, and I love all those cats. And but they're all you know single blokes traveling around with the same DJ crew, doing the same thing. And I'm like, fast forward 25 years, that's where I could be, and that's my if that's my aspiration, that's fine. Now, and then Cox, he's done a, a thousand and one things, owns Unreal Motorbikes, has an amazing life. FYI, right? Yeah. So I'm not, I love you, Carl, if you're listening. But it's just. Everyone's got different sp- apples for apples. Everyone's got their own kind of things mm. they wanted to do. And I was just fatigued personally, mm. fully fatigued and just sort of looking forward to something different. And I also knew that there was perhaps more things in life that could, you know, further define you. And to say whether I'm enjoying hospitality right now means that doesn't mean forever I'm going to do that and I can change again and mm. I probably will. But the point when hospitality came to its in its full force was I'd done like a, a – um, a couple of little things in Melbourne. I've got a, a bar in Melbourne called Ponyfish Island, which yeah. was a fun little, you know, thing in the middle of the Yarra River that was yeah. an ice cream shop that we turned into a bar and restaurant. So was, cool. Do you know where I, I was at the launch of my Mexican cousin? Oh, there you go. That was that was yours, right? Yeah, with Salvatore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. And I think there was a point where you and I had a meeting about Happy Place, the smoothie yeah, bar we did. early on. Yeah, we're going to do one over here. Yes, please. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> so there's all those things that you know happen over time, and you start to think, "Oh, this is actually kind of kind of fun." And I guess the where the real best way to explain um, how you can address hospitality and music, and this is not from worrying about whether Shane turned up for work or not, because that's boring, and no one needs to know about Shane doing <laughs> work or not. But is in relation, say you got a record, and you say it's what's it going to do? Is it going to have what's its groove? What's its beat? What's its cover look like? What does it do? There's a thousand permutations in so mm. how you how you make a record, right? And I'd say the same thing happens for hospitality. So it could be everything from what's the colour palette of the of the place, what's the cuisine, and then if you want to dive into the detail of that, what's the plate, what's the cutlery. Do you touch all those things? Yeah, 100%. Oh, how cool. And so then if, if you want to be creative inside that space, it's ultimately up to you. Then it's about what's the signage package, what's this, what's that, you know, and then if it's defining each level by each room and what moment by moment needs to have some sort of input experiential outcome or whatever else it might be, mm. that's now my new – that's where I get off on that shit now because it's kind of really important to me. Devil's in the detail. So when you talk about the layers, and I often say about layers in hospitality, it's it's like a, it's like a layered cake. It's got to have – it can sometimes have 100 layers. Yeah. Because – and you're only really is you know, inspired or is, you know, soft or, or, or not, not soft. If you're not – if you don't want to put the basic kind of outcome, it's you're selling food and drink to people. It's not hard, you know. But if you want to be really successful ultimately and get through the pitfalls of a pandemic, mm-hmm. then you've got to have this 100-layer cake that even if 45 layers buckle, the thing still stands and so you can get through it, you know what I mean? But I feel like so as someone that has enjoyed this beautiful rooftop at EP and LP and um, Strings of Life as well now and I'll be going there after for a coffee. How good? Uh, For me, I feel like you're giving me, the consumer, an experience and that's where the magic is that you can't get from anywhere else. It's all about like the feeling that I get and you talk about when you were younger doing all the promoting and people would trust in you. I yeah. think you're here again creating through all that creative stuff. Sure, it's harness not now from music. Well, it is because you've got rooftop bars that sure. have music. But, I sure. mean, you've got all this, like like you were saying, the colour palette, the tone, all of that, and you're giving people an experience. It's so interesting because I think the food, drink, and then you put it next to, like, your past of music, it's a no-brainer. Like, it makes total sense that this is where you are in your life right now because, one, you're killing it and so you've got that same work ethic that you've ever, that you've, 
that's in your DNA. Yeah. There's no question in this. I'm just telling you you're great, basically. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it, so, I mean, it sounds all great. I mean, look, there's a thousand one issues everyone deals with, you know, heavy is the crown when these kind of things, ultimately. But, you know, I find that, you know, the experiential piece you talked about is that intangible thing that's really, it's key. I mean, even the way that, you know, I, not to say that you have to design for Instagram, you just know that certain light conditions can be sympathetic to people wanting to create their own content. They're in a space, they want to totally. be, they want to brag that they're in a spot. Now, does that, what's the next wave look like? You know, we've all seen, we've got like, don't get me wrong, we've got some neon signs that people would love taking photos in front I've of. I've had one in front of where love lives. There you go, right. And Is that also the signature cocktail? Yeah, and it's also was Alison uh, Limerick where love lives was a record that we named it after. So, How which good. is an iconic house record at Frankie's Bar, which is named after Frankie Knuckles. So, it's, there's always a music piece in there, but yeah. you know, I think for me now the challenge is what is the what's the next enduring you know kind of trend where people can still showcase themselves in venues and you'll know where it is without having to be so direct about you know signage or other ways of it. So at Grandmaster, we're out got oh, this yes. we've got this monochrome stairwell that's gonna that's lit spectacularly. I think people are gonna, gonna want to stand in the stairwell. That doesn't do anything <laughs> else than be a stairwell. No, but it's, it's definitely. <laughs> an amazing piece of like, it's a moment, it's really strong. And I feel like the front room of that particular venue, I mean, just to give some texture, it was a recording studio from 71 to 2016, you know, Bowie, Blondie, Chili Peppers, Kanye, Foo Fighters, you know, I can go on and on and on about people that recorded in in this iconic building. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting that we're going to do that project. We're looking at a different site and the owner just said, you want to pull up and because we'd seen this other building. I'm like, maybe we'll do that. And he said, I was going to show this recording shit. I'm like, ah, I don't really have time. But sure, you have a look. Walked into this thing. I'm like, duh. Am I doing it? it?" Um, So good. And, you know, but the thing is now it's sort of for us when you often – you know, with the EPLP, not many people would even pick up that EPLP was the extended play, long play, 12-inch, 7-inch kind of vinyl record that. thing. But here, what, it only, only matters if it's um, if it's not successful. It's successful. Everyone goes, oh, what's EPLP? Who cares? I'm just going to go there because it's the name. Like you could call it a pile of dog shit and people go, I'm going to go to a pile of dog shit. And you go, why? Because it's cool. I'm like, really? Do you know how many reviews there are both on podcasts and on YouTube of EP and LP? I'm glad. Like so many, like that's how I knew about the cocktail. Oh, cool. Uh, but also people do these, there's a few LA podcasts where people talk about their weekend and break it down and it fully gets mentioned in like, I've listened to like girls' full weekend stories God just to him. get a like snippet. <laughs> but so you you actually mentioned Grandmaster Records because I was so excited to learn that it had been a recording studio. I had no idea until like, because you and I spoke about it the other day, but yeah. it's opening this summer in LA, right? It is, yeah, yeah. And Italian restaurant? Yep. Rooftop bar. Yep. And then this – so talk to me about Studio 71. Is that part like or is that – Still part of the same building but that was the original studio. So the got studio it. – so it's got three parts of the – three rooms inside Studio 71 where the, the drum room, which was Dave Grohl's favourite drum room on no. the planet. Um, so I've got Dave's – one of Dave's drum kits to be able to put as part of the no. DJ console. Yeah, it's fun. Um, and it's going to still have like a live performance aspect of it, whether it be a, a, a DJ or it be a band or it be like a recording piece, we can do that. 
So the and the and the yeah, I guess the restaurants headed up by Monty Kalidrovic, who was um, Icebergs um, yep. in Sydney with his wife Jackie. So they're going to spearhead it, and the, so the food will be banging. We know that so good. Um, and then the rooftops, you know, 350, 400 people looking straight up at the Hollywood sign, literally the Hollywood signs oh at, my God. On, right in front of you. So if you want to sort of tick the Hollywood box when you come out to LA for those people from Australia, like you'll first come to probably Strings of Life for a, for a flat white, and then you're going to yep. go to EP and do a, a selfie in front of the way love lives, and then you're going to go and check out the Hollywood sign at Grandmaster. And, um, you know, the dining room was where Motley Crue used to do free concerts in the back of this building. Like it's just got this storied past that often when we're making up these bullshit stories about why things mean something, I'm actually in this in this next venue more of a custodian in relation yeah. to making the energy, sure like Not to get too hippie on you, but the energy must feel pretty awesome in there. I'm sick. Right? It's going to be really great. Um and this is the real, the hardest part about the creative process of this is, you know, which bits do we talk about first and which yeah. ones aren't we talking about? And, you know, I've got a, I've got a 95 page, you know, concept, the art, art deck that's like goes from everything from coasters through to, you know, collabs with clothing outcomes and yeah. re-releasing some old vinyl that was produced from that era back on Columbia or whatever else and repressing it under Grandmaster like records again. So, so smart. there's so many like again, but this is taking your brand outside your four walls. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the experiential piece where I was saying before about whether it be lighting or whether it be when you can participate in a dish, like it's either you're gonna crack the dessert or people want to always be now part of the conversation and part of the process demonstrate that they've been in in this spot or whatever else and I feel like the now it's sort of this experiential piece of it is for me to take the brand beyond four walls and then have it as part of your home or your lifestyle or if that's me populating you know even from the most basic things your playlist that you can come and listen to here now you go to Spotify and you can listen to it on your weekend while you're by the pool you know and and defining yourself by what you're not like we're in the rest of LA, everyone's just banging out hip hop. I'm like, nah, Grandmaster's going to be rock and roll. That's it. We do not deviate. We do not change. If you want to go and listen to that stuff, go, go elsewhere. You do you. But if you want to come here for something different, then I got you covered. And I feel like that's the, it's a bit like the John West, you know, it's the John West, the, saint, the fish he rejects that makes him the best. We've got to be the same. <laughs> you know, we've got to say no, 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 and, and be defined. But no is way more important to me than yes. I love that you just brought Tuna into this yeah, conversation. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you, I know I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit, just about Strings of Life because sure. you opened it in smack bang in the middle of a pandemic yeah. in LA, which was really heavily affected. It was. How on earth do you go about doing that? Well, the hardest part about that is when you sort of think about your brand and we've sort of been sitting on it. So we're ready to go um, at the start or in February, March, ready to go. And then we were locked down. So that was kind of the end of that. So we literally were about to open two days before the start of the pandemic. And it's one year today, isn't it? One year it? today. It's yeah. one year today. We made it through one year. So the first thing, there was no one was allowed to leave the house. So clearly that wasn't going to happen at that point. There was yeah. no real takeaway. I'm sure like the same in Australia, no one wanted to know about leaving and staying at home. You're just doing lockdown, bought every um, crappy old soup that you could reheat and think you're not going to like going through a bomb crisis or something, right? Yeah. But we also then had, you know, the, the race relation issues and George Floyd happened and we got ransacked in our in, in strings of life, but like the straight like the week before again, about to reopen again. So it was kind of rebuild, took coffee machines, gone, this, that, the other, you know, you keep on. But again, look, it's you know, first world problems. You, you reopen, you do it again and, you, you know, you pick yourself up and go. So there was plenty of uh, things up against us. And then when we finally got to the start line, 
there was no, you know, it's just, you're launching effectively a to-go service, you know, and it's sort of from a brand experiential outcome, you know, not sitting inside, not doing all these things that you sort of would have thought would be natural to a brand. It was just really trying to create a, the branding piece and then we sort of luckily sometimes the pandemic offers you some some good outcomes and for us the outdoor seating piece we actually yeah. could extend our patio significantly and then just really invested in this outdoor kind of culture and it's sort of very Australian to sit. We sort of did like they do in Bills or any Australian cafe when you can sit on your window ledge yeah. and do those kind of things, which Americans are kind of like, why would you sit on your window ledge? I'm like, because that's where you just hang out and have a coffee with your mates. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, it's not unusual in Australia to do these kind of things. So we just sort of really made it a place that people could just come and hang out and and talk about life and other bits and pieces mm. and take you to go and but still sit on our balcony but not really because yeah. it was kind of it's a little bit gray in the areas of whether we should have been allowed or not but it sort of then just continued to grow and grow and to the point where now we're about to we're going to launch our second location in Santa Monica which will come online this summer as well and so it's great you know it's sort of we managed to build a pretty robust and solid brand um, even inside a pandemic which tells me that once we're taz off today without any restrictions oh, it should start to really move the needle. So exciting. And I want to ask about the Melrose Theatre there. So is it true that this was literally an old car park unused? Yeah, well, where the cinema is, it's definitely, it is still a car park technically. You you can drive your car up on there now. It's sort of built so you can do that. Um, We did a drive-in actually with Lamborghini. It was a bit of fun so they can (laughs) put their cars on there. But the rooftop theatre for me was kind of, again, you look at the the views when you're on the rooftop, it's pretty amazing looking at the Hollywood Mm. Hills. And you come back to what your best utilisation of your space and you create things out of, I guess, necessity. Mm-hmm. And we sort of thought that the roof as a cinema could be really special. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back up those twinkling, you know, Hollywood hills mm-hmm. and we're in a place where they do make the movies and if you actually want to get access to actors and talent or producers, you can actually get them to do a pre-movie talk about the stuff. So we did, we launched with a few of those kind of bits and pieces. Yeah. And it just sold out every night, mm-hmm. like literally every night sold out. And so we do a thing where you get them for dinner and a movie. So you get them downstairs at 6.30. You've got 60 people in your dining room. So it's, you know, your first turn's a rocker. And then people walk in at 7 o'clock thinking, because LA's a bit of a later town. At 7 o'clock, the place is pumping. You're like, wow, this joint's popping. But then you throw them up onto the roof. They watch a movie. And then you put them back onto the main rooftop afterwards for one more drink. It's sort of a bit like exiting back into a casino. I love it. But it's been wildly successful. Um, Last year, we couldn't operate it, clearly. But this year, it's coming back again and... Each year it comes with a new thematic and new sort of theme and it's been it's, – it's amazing. And I think that you sort of – once that we had our, a pop-up out there during the pandemic, which was called Las Palmas, it was just a Mexican kind of thematic to them pop-up, which was great, but I think it's back to time to, to get back to normal kind of outcomes where, you know, we can go back to our sold-out nights and do some cool little launches. And more than ever now, I think the studios are – like Netflix and Hulu's of the world are all wanting to do premieres because, you know, the traditional premieres for those kind of um, companies don't exist. Yeah, you know, totally. The, what, there's no point going into a red carpet for free service at home. But yeah. they do want to say, you know, potentially still get their talent to come down and do their little bit of a junket and whatever else. Yeah. But on a rooftop particularly this year again when it's sort of people wanting to be overly cautious in relation to the ongoing pandemic or the mm-hmm. wrap-up of here. It is. seems like the COVID ferry went away today on the yeah. 15th of June. But um, I think that certain companies will not want to alienate their non-vaccinated, get, um, you know, because it's not compulsory, obviously. Yeah. And if you had someone in your team that wasn't, but they, where would they feel safe? I'd say they'd feel safe outdoors. Mm-hmm. And then we've got one of the only outdoor cinemas now 
in SoCal. So as it turns out, it's going to be, I, I can't see it not being an amazing year. Oh, so good. Um, is it true that it opens on the 4th of July? It opens on 4th of July. Yeah. And people were saying, why would you open on 4th of July? It's a big beach day. I'm like, well, that's why you open on the 4th of July and yeah. do a sellout night and make sure you yeah. have a really good win. Go to the beach, come watch a movie. That's it. So Dirty Dancing, you can't go wrong. Bit of Patrick. Oh, you cannot beat Dirty Dancing. I was going to say, what is your, I guess that your most popular would be like La La Land. It's super that we sold, I oh, know, we sold that out like six times last year. Yeah. But, you know, I think that the, we found out the magic is that the demo ultimately is that, you know, we have a client base for the cinema that's pretty much female skewed and it's sort of a date night or they're the ones driving the sale decision. Yeah. So if we decide to put on some, you know, hardcore male flick, even though you said even things like you think would sell Bruce Willis, you know, maybe we're going to put Nakatomi (laughs) Plazas just down the road in Studio City, we're going to do a bit die hard. Yeah. Guys are like, nah, I've seen it. Yeah. But if you sit there and put bridesmaids on, the girl's like, oh, yeah. happy to see that. Love that movie. <laughs> Notebook, I imagine, would fly. 100. Yeah. 100. Just pass the extra bottle of Plonk. Let's just get into <laughs> it, you know. <laughs> Ladies night. So good. Okay, so this question, I don't know if you remember this. I asked you this a few years ago when we were having a drink on the rooftop mm-hmm. at EP and LP. So you are super kind, super friendly. You always make time for me every time in LA. And I'm like, can we have a coffee? Every time without fail, you make time for me. You're very calm, like your nature is very calm, but you're also running big, big hospo staff. I imagine you've got to have like a little bit of cutthroat about you. Do you have that in your nature? Because I don't see it. You know. No, I do, I do. It's just how you go about it. You can get those outcomes out of people however you choose to. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm happy to have a direct conversation, but it'll be direct but it won't be necessarily unfair. Yeah. It's just really going to be here we are, let's have a chat about it and you probably know why you're here kind of thing. Yeah. Because I, there's no point blowing up with someone and being, you know, getting irate because it's you're still going to come back to the same position. Yeah. And you can often kill them with kindness where we've sit there and we've gone back and said we've talked about this but we've come back to it again. So where do you want to be? Because if we can't get to this place where you need to be, I need to find someone that can do that. And often at that point they'll fall on their sword and say that's where we are. Yeah. And if it gets to a point though, if I want to manage someone out of out of a spot, I'll manage yeah. them out. Um, ultimately, it's not you know again, it's not. This is just a big business. And, you know, when you're talking about by October this year, we'll have 600 employees out here. Oh and wow! So you just can't afford. I can't afford a drongo running around being an idiot. Because I love that you just said drongo. Yeah, so Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get that here. But yeah. I mean, I've had more lawsuits than you've had at breakfast in America. Like so, everything here comes back to some. Some ambulance chaser trying to trying to find a dollar. So if you've got someone who's incompetent or just being um, irresponsible in their position of power, and we haven't um, held them to account, then you, it'll come back to bite you. So you know, as much as I I certainly am, you know, trying to drive this pipeline of opportunity for all our employees. Yeah. And it really is in America for us, it's a grow or die proposition yeah. because if you can't continue that pipeline for them, then they will leave anyway and you'll lose the good ones. Yeah. So, again, I mentioned poor old, you know, Johnny or whoever else didn't turn up for a shift. You've got to get big enough. That doesn't matter that whether they do or they don't. That's a manager's position to figure out how got to get it. through. But our biggest and underlying issue at the moment is just staffing because there's, there's a bit like Australia when you have the – um, the job keeper in Australia, whatever else, they're earning more money staying at home at the yeah. moment. So the hospital, particularly when you're talking about it, it's been uh, a space where you had to wear a mask, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. Um, I understand why people didn't want to necessarily come back and do the dishes for 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is changing a lot and I think that there's certainly, you know, 
It's just all it is going to be the inflationary animal that's going to come through America this year. We're just going to put prices up, pay our staff more, do whatever else. But unfortunately, it's just going to be what it is. But it's they've just got to get the labour force back. That's the biggest, biggest challenge for 2021. Oh, everything you say is like getting me so like, this is a thing as well, coming from Australia, coming to LA, like it feels like a completely different beast. Obviously, like the population of California is more than the entire population of Australia. There is that. (laughs) (laughs) So things feel more direct. They feel more specific. They feel clearer. They feel, and I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I feel like when you're talking about having 600 staff, um, you know, the stakes feel quite high here for anybody. I think if you're an Aussie coming over here chasing something, a dream, an opportunity, you need that kind of like, I don't know what the mentality is, but it's kind of, it's very, it's clear, it's direct and there's no real time for like wasting. And I feel that when I'm with you, like I don't feel like you waste time at all. No, I certainly don't. Probably wake up in the middle of the night too often and think you've got your notepad out and making sure I don't forget things for the morning, which yeah. is a bit, a bit annoying. But to your point, I mean, I feel like, we're doing deals. We do, like, again, you do, a, it's a bit like you kiss a lot of frogs trying to find the prince or the princess in America, yeah. but you're having a lot of meetings, a lot of people sort of saying, let's do stuff, let's do stuff. It's not that you're wanting, like in Australia, where, oh, you've done all well, you've done well already, Lola, so you probably should just call your, call your jets a bit, you know, and that's the yeah. old Australian, like, you know, we've all talked, talked about tall puppy, whatever else. It's more here is, They'll say to you at Strings of Life, for example, hey, how many more of these do you want to do? Do you need money? Do you need capital? Do you need like another site? What do you need? How do we help? And it's more like me with my stick fending them off saying, no, I'm good. We'll just keep on growing at our own pace. But they do want to grow brands. They do want to grow change. They want to grow you as a person. They want to grow everything that's about you. And then you can start to get these developers calling you and saying, let's do stuff. I heard you guys are great curators of outcomes. We need to do more. We need to do more. And this is a, is a, a platform that takes you not only to, you know, if your gateway cities in New York, Miami, if that's just America, but it could also be then, you know, UK, it could yeah. be Spain, it could be anywhere. It's just definitely not necessarily straight back to Australia where we've got our, you know, significant labour costs and all the rest of that. Yeah. Um, don't be wrong, I do want to go back to Australia at some point with some of these brands and, and, and do that. Um, but it feels like then the right time, we'll, we'll come back as the international company. It's a bit like, you know, when you get the Aussie actor that comes back home because you almost had to go away to become totally, popular all over again. Totally. Every, <laughs> you look even up Steve Irwin, he got loved after he made it in Australia. No, I love this. I actually found some old YouTube interviews with you like early TB Rock days. Holy moly. And I think I sent you a photo of I one of them. I saw one of those. That was a bit scary. So you realise how inspiring you are though? Like this is like literally you're like, do I work harder than most people? Absolutely. Like this is you in the middle of the interview and you say things like you've just got to roll up your sleeves, I believe in having no regrets and invest in your passion. I mean this is a no-brainer but it sounds like you live like this way today. Is that right? 100 I love it. It's so inspiring and you have always made me so um, excited to be in America. So thank you for being such a big support from the get-go. Glad you're here. Dude. Just took a minute. I know. It took a little (laughs) while. Thank you so much. Total honour to have you on the show. Unreal. You're a legend. Pleasure. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lola Berry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and comment. And of course, spread the love. Mm-hmm.